This is Trish Travis. I'm an associate professor of gender, sexuality, and women's studies at the University of Florida, and you're listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. More from Dr. Travis soon. She is the author of Rethinking Therapeutic Culture, The Language of the Heart, A Cultural History of the Recovery Movement from Alcoholics Anonymous to Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Rebellion Dogs Radio, a 21st century look at 12-step life now with less dogma and more bite. Glad you can be with us. Dr. Trish Travis is uh, also a senior contributing editor at uh, Points. It's a blog of the Alcohol and Drug History Society. We'll link to all of that from rebelliondogspublishing.com. We'll very quickly get to my conversation with Trish Travis. She's speaking to us from Gainesville. She was uh, very well received, I understand, as a speaker at the recovery series at Sedona Mago Retreat Center, the AA History Symposium, where she shared her research and findings with the history of women in Alcoholics Anonymous and the larger recovery community. She'll share some of that with us soon. I was just there in Sedona leading a group that didn't need much leading, actually. We were having a discussion about a secular view to the 12 steps. Instead of thinking about how the original 100 members got sober, we focused on how the most recent 100 members got sober and the language that the most recent 100 members used to explain their experience, strength and hope, instead of relying on, say, 1939 language. Being authentic We felt that has to mean something. Anyway, wish you could have been there. I'll be reporting more on that at a later date. This discussion I had with uh, Trish Travis, I can only give you a portion of it. It was great. I just want to be respectful of your time. I've cut it down. We'll try to get her on again. It's still going to run long. We're going to have some music from the Prague rock indie band from the UK, Moulettes. We've got all kinds of uh, up-to-date news and notes about life in 12-step land on rebelliondogspublishing.com. Again, very soon I'll share more of what uh, our group uh, discussed. We had people from Alabama to Central California to Yes, Canada talking about the 12 steps in plain language. Anyway, if you care at all about marginalized communities, about the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, you're really going to enjoy this. So let's get right to it. Ladies and gentlemen, from the University of Florida, Dr. Trish Travis. You offer some great... I would say context in in the way you look at underrepresented populations in AA uh, because uh-huh. you come from kind of an academic background, and uh, uh-huh. I, I think that is really helpful. I had 
a chance to listen to your wonderful presentation in Sedona. And I, I've been there where you were doing the same thing for the free thinker movement in AA and some of the history I'd done at GSO. Well, let me say two things. First, I always feel vulnerable speaking in front of an AA audience because I'm not a member of the program. Mm -hmm. um, so that puts me in a different position relative to many of the people in the audience. And while I think I understand and respect the differences between us, I understand that I can sometimes get things wrong, and I'm just never going to speak from the position of firsthand experience like many of the audience members. So that's a, that's a real vulnerability for me, one I try to respect and work with, and I think that usually goes pretty well. I am used to feeling in a public setting where I'm talking about gender politics that there are going to be people who may not have thought about what I'm saying before, who've thought about it and already decided they don't agree with it, who've thought about it and aren't sure what to think about it. And so I try to build a lot of recognition of those differences into the way I present my material as well. And I went into the Sedona talk with that in mind, assuming pretty much that anyone who was there is somebody who's going to have an open mind. You don't come to a conference on AA history unless you're interested in learning more than you already know and questioning some of the things that you feel solid about. So I had those expectations going in, and I felt like... You know, I watched some of the other presenters before me, and I got a sense of how the audience was interacting with them. And I used to do theater when I was a kid, and so I'm mm -hmm. pretty good at reading the audience and feeling like I, you know, have a I'm getting the energy in the room right. So I, you know, I felt like once I warmed up, okay, I felt like okay, people are with me, and I could see people nodding and mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And then the the questions and answers I thought were just right. You know, there were a lot of people who said, thanks so much, this is exactly what I'd been thinking, thanks so much, I never thought about this, but I know I need to, and a couple of people who said, I totally disagree with what you just said, but thanks anyway. That's a good, that's a good outcome for me. Yeah, that, that's, that's as good as it gets, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Looking at AA, and I don't know if this is a yes or no question, but in terms of identity politics, does AA have unique circumstances or is it just a microcosm of society at large when it comes to Wow, that is an amazing question. Uh, I would love to um, I would love to be able to write a you know a serious article about uh, about that. So just in case your listeners don't know what identity politics are, in case they think they know, let's make sure we're on the same page with that. So that term um, came about in the early 1970s as groups of lesbian women and women of color who had felt like they were not at home in or unwelcomed by or made second-class citizens within the broader women's liberation movement split off from white women's groups to form their own coalitions and organizations. One of the key organizations that articulated the reasons for doing that 
and are kind of credited with coming up with the term identity politics is the Kambahi River Collective, which was a women of color liberation group uh, in the Boston area, mm-hmm. started in the early 70s. They came in their, in their statement, which is a sort of manifesto for why they do what they do and why they don't do things they used to do, they use the term organize around our own oppression. They say, this is what we need to do, is organize around our own oppression. As black women, we've felt marginalized within the civil rights and the black power movements uh, by men. As black women, we've felt marginalized in the women's liberation movement by white women. So we have a unique set of circumstances that we share as black women. We are more like women in the third world and developing countries, for example, Vietnam, or Latino women in the United States uh, than we are like white women. So we are going to organize around our own oppression, around our identity as women of color in the United States. And we'll form coalitions with different groups who are different from us in order to achieve goals that we all agree on. But we're going to organize around our own oppressions and our identity as oppressed women of color. So that's a little back history on what identity politics means and where it came from. Um, it gets tossed around a lot now, and I think a lot of people think that it's a term that was just recently invented, but it has a long history, and it comes out of a very specific place in a moment of political organizing uh, mm-hmm. on the left. Okay, now, is AA like a microcosm of society and its dealings with identity politics, or is it something different? So one of the things that I find most interesting about AA and other 12-step groups that are similar to it Mm -hmm. is that the identity that is most salient is the identity of being an alcoholic. That's the identity that everyone is organized around, to use the Kambahi Collective's term. Mm -hmm. It's the identity that everyone is oppressed by, if you want to put it in political terms. And that identity is supposed to override um, all other identities. I'm a wealthy white man, so what? You're a drunk. I'm a woman who's been sexually abused and addicted to drugs by her um, by her partner. So what? You're not you're an addict. All of those things are supposed to be subordinated to your identity as a, an alcoholic or an addict. Um, that allows for a lot of clarity. You can focus on one thing that in the program is given this huge causal power. Why is my life the way it is? Because I'm an alcoholic, because I'm an addict. All I have to do is focus on solving that problem, which I can by working the steps, and then all my other problems are going to resolve sort of like dominoes falling. I gotta do footwork, for sure. Everybody everybody who's got a real program knows that things don't just happen by magic. You have to do footwork. But you keep focused on that one causal thing and what footwork is necessary is revealed as you work the program. That is a really powerful way of seeing a life that has been messed up in a variety of ways. It's a great tool for organizing a response to your situation. It's a great tool for getting through the world, for understanding your place in the world, and for, and for improving your situation. 
provided, of course, you can do the footwork. So I'm, I have been amazed in my work on 12-step culture with, with AA's ability to offer clarity to people whose lives have, have become extremely cloudy to them. And that cloudiness, which is a brain fog caused by alcoholism in some ways, but is also just the sort of messiness of everyday life at another level, that cloudiness can be resolved by a really close following of the program. And that's the miracle, I think, um, of AA, is that individual people believe it, and you have a community of other people who believe the same thing who support you in that belief. Mm -hmm. In much the same way that religious conversion is a is a road to sobriety for a lot of people. It gives them an answer. Jesus Christ is the answer. And it gives them a community in which other people all have the same answer. So all of a sudden, your old bad answers, nobody cares, nobody, nobody believes in them anymore. You don't have to believe in them. And so you just go down that road and that can lead you to sobriety, to prosperity, to whatever. So um, AA functions in many ways, it seems to me, like a clarifying um, device. And that alcoholic identity is extremely powerful for some people, for some people, not for everyone. Yeah. What, is, what is tough for me to think about as a person who is not in the program and for a person who is, um, by personality and by training, necessarily um, really critical of simple sort of monolithic unidi not dyadic but uni uniform um, mm -hmm. answers is that my first response is all to any simple clarifying principle is always maybe it's a little bit more complicated than that mm -hmm. so if we think of like the addict identity as a lens that brings the whole world into focus, which offers clarity and a way forward, my personal instinct is always to say, maybe we need not a lens, but a prism that will actually show the multiplicity of issues that we're seeing here. Um, because a lens can like bring things into focus and also sort of bracket things out of our line of vision. So to me, that identity, that identity of alcoholic or addict often pushes to the margins questions that are really relevant to the drinking and drugging habits that people develop over time. So a woman who has been sexually victimized in her family of origin and then in later life and who drinks and drugs to self-medicate as a way to deal with that trauma, to me, it's not just sort of like a random additional detail that she is a woman who's been sexually abused. It's an important part of understanding how she became someone who drinks and drugs. And if you say, hey, that doesn't matter, you just need to not drink, well, not drinking is probably a good idea. There's no question about that. But to push that other stuff to the margins and to act as though it's not important, to think, I just got to not drink and I don't have to think about the other things that happened to me. I don't have to reckon with who I am as a woman. I don't have to reckon with how I deal with men going forward. I don't have to think about all of that. That seems to me to leave a lot of really important stuff on the table. Now, in an ideal situation, 
you work on that stuff with your sponsor and maybe get recommended to see a therapist if you need to or something like that. There's I my understanding of a good program is one in which those things get recognized and dealt with in an individual sort of behind the scenes way by a good sponsor and and good and a good meeting. Mm-hmm. They're not in the big book. They're not something we talk about a lot, um, but there is a place for them if they can be recognized. A bad program, I think, um, is one where people deny that that stuff matters. Um, people deny the fact that, you know, somebody who's black might feel a little awkward at an all-white meeting. Even if they identify as an addict, they're still a black person who those white people might not treat well if they saw them in another place. And to deny that that happens, I think, is leaving some, it's some unfinished business that we all have to deal with as, um, as people in a racially, gendered, sexually divided society. Mm-hmm. So I, I understand that... Um, the program is not a sociology department, and it's not um, a political movement. It's got to keep one thing front and center, and that's um, working on sobriety and identifying as um, being powerless over alcohol. I think that there's a place in the interpersonal relationships of the program to deal with other stuff, and I, it's been my experience in some meetings that I've gone to with friends and family that that stuff is, is allowed and is dealt with and is not brushed to the side. Mm-hmm. A dogmatic program that acts as though that stuff doesn't matter is not a good program as far as I'm concerned. And I have friends who <clears throat> have gone to AA looking for sobriety, looking for help, and been told until you get over the fact that you think you're victimized because you're a woman or because you're gay or something like that, you're never going to get sober, and we don't want to hear that crap in here. And that has not worked out well for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those people have left the program. Some have gotten sober on their own. Some have continued to drink and drug, and um, one or two have um, died. There's not a way to regulate how that stuff gets talked about in the program, the big book doesn't talk about it. The GSO doesn't want to touch it. Probably if you tried to regulate it, it wouldn't work very well. It really is a matter of the, the open-mindedness and the thoughtfulness and the sort of grace of the individuals in the program to recognize that race, gender, class, sexuality, those things are real, and they impact why people start using and keep using in the way that they do and dealing with them is going to impact the kind of sobriety they have as well in my opinion mm-hmm. yeah i don't know if that really answered your question or not no it uh well if it didn't it answered another one that was beautiful <laughs> you know i uh i came to aa as a teenager so I, I've always had a "Hey, what about me?" card to play if I ever wanted to play. Mm. Right? Like, uh, you know, they dismiss young alcoholics as barely alcoholics, and you know, in the same way, they could be dismissive of someone who is uh, 
you know, believes in a natural worldview instead of a supernatural worldview, and they'll say, well, you right. keep, keep, keep an open mind and you'll come around, right? So, right. But, but I, I also, uh, I get to walk out of my AA meeting now in my white male heteronormative privilege right you know like yeah. I, I, i'm not stuck in it my whole life and and i um uh, you know so i i still have some white male privilege guilt i suppose even though i you know can empathize with um sort of a marginalized society uh, i i was right. talking to a, a woman about traveling and how great it is to just you're, you're driving you you see you're going to be in uh, Memphis. Okay, where's a meeting? I'm going to pull over, hop out of my car, go to an AA meeting. And and I don't think anything of it. And uh, yeah. I was talking to another woman in recovery and she said, well, yeah, I kind of have to phone central office to find out what kind of neighborhood that is. And yeah. that's yeah. right. Like, I never think of that, right? You know, I don't yeah. have to think about that. Uh, and I, I'm just constantly reminded that... Um, some people have their, you know, marginalized life for all of their circles that they dwell in, and, and I, I don't. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that um, there is a way in which um, the focus in the literature and in a lot of meetings on the fact that we're all the same in the room. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody's welcome here. We're all equalized by our humility in the face of alcohol. That is a powerful democratizing language, and it creates amazing relationships that couldn't be created in other spaces in our society. But people who leave those rooms and move into a really stratified, unequal society that vilifies them, hounds them, marginalizes them. Those are, the rooms are a special space for them, and when they leave, they go out into a very hostile world. And so for people who leave those rooms and like the world they move into is welcoming to them, is unthreatening to them, yeah. to act as though that's not the experience of other people, I think that's a huge blind spot. Um, you know, there's, you know, the great story about in the, in the big book, or maybe it's, it's actually in 12 and 12, I think, um, about, you know, um, the, Bill, Bill is at the Alano Club or something, this was a long time ago, uh, and, you know, some guy who's clearly like a homeless guy comes in and they, you know, give him a job sweeping up or something like that, and it's like, well, that's great, and that's a real... That's a really, that's the generous, and he gets sober in the program. Um, that's great, and that's the generous kernel at the spirit of the program. Yeah. But those, uh, when you go to a downtown meeting, uh, like, you know, uh, I'm from Dallas, and, you know, when I go to the meetings in downtown Dallas where all the homeless guys yeah. go to hang out to get warm and stuff, they're welcome in the program if they want to walk, you know, talk the talk and stuff like that, and maybe it'll hit with them. And then they leave, and they don't have a place to sleep that night. Yeah. And for, for folks who are centered in 
the world, who don't have to worry about what part of town they go to, who don't have to worry about where they're going to sleep at night, who don't have to worry if immigration is looking for them. They can focus on their program because they don't have to worry about those other things. And to act as though other people who are positioned differently um, to resources should just be able to not think about that stuff as well, I think that's a real sort of chauvinism that that can really impede your understanding of the complexities of drinking and drugging. Mm-hmm. Um, because there are people for whom their marginalized positions in society amplify their desire to drink because they need to self-medicate that they may be alcoholics they may not be alcoholics but Mm -hmm. they are drinking because they have these kinds of stresses in their life and acting like well you should just be able to get over those stresses is not productive for them and i worry sometimes that that's the message that's given out in in the program when we focus on the identity of the alcoholic or the addict to the exclusion of other identities it creates clarity, but it also denies the reality of a lot of important things. What would you say about uh, AA modality? Um, like, if you treat the steps as uh, sort of age-old principles and forget about the wording, just make your own wording, they're, they're completely uh-huh. uh, democratized, right? But, yeah. but we preserve the words exactly as they are, uh, and where things like ego deflation at depth makes sense for, again, that privileged white middle-class male, um, uh-huh. it, it might not be the best therapy for um, you know anyone marginalized. How well is AA sort of accommodating that? Uh, or do you think that is... Um, uh, a hurdle still to be overcome? Well, so there's an empirical dimension to your question that I can't really answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this goes to the question of, like, is the program growing? How, how many people are actually getting sober in the program? Uh, how many people go to the program and then leave and never come back? Mm-hmm. And I don't have good data on that, and not re- nobody really does. My sort of just from reading around in the scientific literature which tries to capture these numbers from talking with program people about what they've seen over the years uh, and from you know going to meetings and sort of looking at the people around there and stuff is that that modality works fantastic for a very small group of people and is useful for another increment of the of the problem drinking and drugging population mm-hmm. and is completely useless for a, another large <laughs> population. Mm-hmm. I think that the whole powerlessness, admitting that you have a problem, abstinence only, um, got to go to a lot of meetings and stuff like that. I think there are just people out there who, for whatever reason, that is not an effective intervention for them. And you can tell folks it's just a one day at a time thing. You don't have to do the whole thing today. And that sort of makes it sound a little less of a big sort of global worldview shift that you're asking people to take on. But it's still, the implication is you're going to change your entire life. 
And there are a lot of people out there who don't want to or can't do that. And so the AA program is not going to draw them in. I think that's okay. Um, you know, this morning I went to my Pilates class because I like Pilates. You know, tomorrow I'm going to go to yoga because I also like yoga. I think it's okay to have a multimodal mm-hmm. sort of approach. AA gets into trouble, I think, when it says that it's the only program that can um, guarantee sobriety. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the only program for some people, but there are other people for whom it has not worked and probably won't work. I think motivational interviewing and brief cognitive therapy can work for some people, but not for others. I think rational recovery and moderation management can work for some people and not for others. You know, people are... Here's a news flash. People are really different. <laughs> and people's drink and drug habits are different. They grew out of different circumstances. They are affected by different life circumstances as people age. And so there are so different things might work for the same person at different times in their life. Um, and we we the program gets into trouble the behavioral health system gets into trouble treatment providers get into trouble the government gets into trouble when there's this sort of there's going to be this silver bullet and we're going to find that and it's going to cure everybody who's got a substance abuse problem that just doesn't seem like that's a biomedical understanding of addiction that I think is really flattened up the complexity of it. Mm-hmm. And it, it denies the fact that there are actually a lot of different people out there. They drink and drug in different ways for different reasons, and they're going to reduce their problematic drinking and drugging in different ways through different means. Mm-hmm. Because AA offers so much clarity, it has been taken up by the behavioral health system and, to a certain extent, by federal policy um, as, you know, a great modality. Everybody should use it. That has had a negative effect on research into other treatment modalities that could be useful and good and that are easier to sort of assess because they don't require anonymity. So, so... I, I have seen people's lives totally changed by the program. Mm-hmm. My father was a stone alcoholic, and he's now a happy and productive retired dude who mm-hmm. is even occasionally easy to get along with. Uh, and the program has done that for him. But I have other people in my life who have um, not merely not been helped by it, but who have been harmed by it because they went to the program because they had a drinking problem, and they were told, um, until you admit you're powerless, you're never going to feel better. And, you know, and that was just sort of not in the cards for them, and so they left having been doubly, they were humiliated by their inability to um, manage their drinking, then they were doubly humiliated when they got to AA and were told, unless you do what we do, you're never going to get better. Mm-hmm. Um, and this person is now, through some different interventions, is now doing fine and is on the road to having a happy and productive life. The AA modality is fantastic for some people. It would be good if it could be humble about the fact that it's not fantastic for everyone. That sort of truth can set people free. Uh, I, I mean, AA has a hard time 
accepting criticism and and yeah. <laughs> and, and and finding it like I loved your prism analysis. Like people who say it's the the last house on the block, and they don't know a whole subdivision has been built since that expression right. was first used. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And and yeah, and both um, you know, sort of the zealots and the critics, because AA has its harsh critics. They, they get trapped on the same things, like some people yeah. come to AA and they go away and that mean, and critics say that means AA failed. And, and yeah. how do we know? Like some of those people got what they needed, got on with their life, and their life was improved, right? AA succeeded. Just because they didn't right. go to meetings every week doesn't mean AA didn't yeah. serve them, right? You know, so, so we, we, we don't yeah. know enough, do we? I sometimes toy with the idea of like just you know writing a, a a whole you know a whole article or a whole long blog post about you know this year's AA bashing books um, you know that uh, it seems like every year or two a few come out some of them are science based quote unquote some of them are personal narratives some mix the mix the two and um, I feel the same way about those as I do about um, the sort of like AA the rah-rah AA crowd um, and the sort of mindless, you know, ways in which therapists and behavioral health people um, just send people, oh, you need to go to AA, you need to go to AA. The, the boosters and the critics both act as though AA is the stable, knowable entity, like a Baskin-Robbins or something, mm. or a Dunkin' Donuts, when in fact, and this is, I think, one of the virtues that I um, that I have as a person who is not in the program for my own well-being, is that I have a more of a bird's eye view, and I can't even. I tried to talk about this in my book. I can't even say what AA is, or if there is a thing that is AA, because AA is. There's a set of literature, which is what I ended up writing my book about because that was the only thing that was stable. But <laughs> AA is so different based on what part of the country you're in, whether you're in a city or in a rural setting, what part of a city you're in, if it's a big city. The differences are just so enormous, like a black and white drawing that is like a, the, the steps but those are brought to life and made colorful and three-dimensional and warm and alive in each meeting. When you say go to AA, it's like, well, do you want to go to a big book thumpers meeting or do you want to go to a free thinkers meeting? Do you want to go to a women's meeting? Do you want to go to a meeting in the black part of town where you're going to have a lot of like people who are sort of like working class and poor? Do you want to go to a meeting out in the suburbs where everybody's going to come in driving their Mercedes and they're all going to trade business cards at the break? You know, those are all AA, and there is very little in common. I shouldn't say that. There, mm -hmm. there are things in common at each of those meetings. Maybe 50% of what happens at each of those meetings is the same. The other 50% is wildly different, and that difference is what's going to make the difference in whether a certain kind of person finds what they need to get sober in that meeting. That's just, that is just so huge to me. Yeah. I mean, I... I started going to meetings uh, when I lived in the Northeast, when I was in graduate school, and I was just, because, you know, I had friends and family and stuff, so I was going to meetings to, to be supportive and going to Al-Anon for myself and stuff. I was like, yeah, this is great, you know, I love this program, this is terrific and stuff. 
people were super strict in the town where I lived about not using last names. Anonymity was a huge deal because it was a college town, a university town, and it was really important for people not to use their last names because it might identify them as a member of the faculty or a member of the administration or a member of the union, which was the, you know, the physical plant workers and the clerical workers who were frequently in a big fight with the faculty and the administration. So, it, so anonymity was a huge deal. And I was like, I so respected anonymity. It's what made me love the program and stuff. And I thought it was terrific. Then I got a job, I finished school, I got a job back in the Bible Belt from Dallas, and so I moved home to Dallas. And first off, the first meeting I went to, people were talking about Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. And I thought, what is this? Like, you know, we don't, we talk about my higher power in, in, in the meetings I go to. So what is this about Jesus Christ? And then at the break, people started coming over and offering me their business cards and asking me where I worked and if I wanted to buy a house from them and stuff like that. And I was just astounded because that wasn't the program that I knew. But what I came to realize, and this is one of the reasons that I wrote my book, was that that was the program in Dallas, in that part of Dallas mm -hmm. at least. And it was different from the program that I knew in New York and around there. And this was not something that is reflected in any of the public health or psych literature or any of the sort of biomedical writing about AA. It's just like AA is this thing, you should go to it. Um, and there's no recognition of the fact that the meeting that you go to could be completely different from the meeting that somebody's brother goes to. And I feel like that is just a sort of a thing that most people in the program know that. But the um, behavioral health world, which sends people to AA, is completely unaware of that. And the result is they send people to AA, people go, people go and they're like, the, uh, the people there were crazy. They were all talking about Jesus Christ. I don't want to go there again. Um, so I think that that difference is really, is really part of what makes AA work for so many people. But the fact that it's not talked about by um, by medical and psych professionals, and probably because they themselves aren't aware of it, that is a real downfall because no one thinks like, oh, here, this person has this demographic set of characteristics. I think I'll send them to this meeting on town. I'll recommend this meeting to them and steer them away from that meeting in that other part of town. I have an old copy of the 12-step facilitation guide, Joe Nowinski and a bunch of others. It was all part of Project Match. They talk about, you know, counselor-client uh, relations and how to indoctrinate or encourage your clients or patients to uh, get involved in AA. And regarding, like, the God issue, for instance, they just say, well, tell them it can be anything they want it to be. But that doesn't really prepare them for... the. They they saying well my God is power of example, <laughs> uh, uh -huh. re reality is my higher power. Uh, they don't prepare them for what the the wide array of reactions they could get to candidly yeah. using a secular higher power, uh, and yeah. I think that's a big mistake that they don't do more to you know help clients sort of clarify that and how to be sensitive to the fact that not everyone will it's not a popularity contest you don't need consensus but 
But if you don't prepare clients for the fact that they may be well received, they may not be, uh, they, they're yeah. going to have to go to more meetings. I, I think that's uh, uh, an oversimplification. Yeah, I think that's huge. And I think that for, um, for people who are just stumbling their way towards sobriety or to put it another way, stumbling their way out of their drinking and drug problem, mm -hmm. to send them unprepared into a meeting where people are going to talk about something as, as high intensity as their spiritual beliefs, and they're expected to have something to say on that score too, um, that is a, that's really bad medicine, I think, because you don't want to send vulnerable people like that into a situation where they're potentially going to be weirded out by the conversation around them and potentially bullied or shamed because they can't participate or don't want to participate. I think that is a sort of flat-footedness um, on the part of a lot of helping professionals who don't know about the diversity of beliefs within AA and don't think to take that into account when they recommend clients to the program. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, they should be, they should ask more questions of their client and be more familiar with what's available in their local AA and other alternatives. There's Women for Sobriety, there's right. Secular Organizations for Sobriety, you know, th these types of options too. Yeah, because I'm neither, you know, in the program nor in the behavioral health world, I don't have much of a platform for reaching out to people in that world to say, hey, have you all thought about this? Because you might want to develop some best practices for, mm -hmm. you know, remanding people to mutual aid societies uh, because there are a lot of different options. Maybe professional counselors and psychologists who are themselves in the program could take the lead on that in a way that I'd like to see. All those folks need to get continuing education credits, and I would love to be able to do some education on the fact that there are these differences within AA, there are these different options for mutual aid beyond AA, can you all start thinking more clearly and carefully about where you send clients rather than just, you know, dumping them all on AA? And I'm not even talking here about court-ordered attendance mm -hmm. at AA for DUIs and stuff. I'm just talking about people who present in a regular behavioral health setting and are sort of moving out of the inpatient part of the treatment. I'm talking about moving those folks into some um, external organizations that could actually be helpful to them instead of being um, counterproductive. And in the case of some friends I've known, you know, women who experience sexual abuse in their home as kids in highly religious households, Daddy talking about how they were going to go to hell was very connected with daddy coming into their bedroom every night mm -hmm. to punish them for being bad. Mm -hmm. And so the last thing they needed to hear when they were trying to get sober was about um, Jesus and stuff like that, because Jesus was linked to daddy, who was linked to their sexual abuse, who was linked to their drinking. And so the idea that they're going to have to listen to a bunch of stuff about Jesus in order to stop drinking just was not going to work for them. Mm -hmm. now, or what was your role in it? <laughs> that, that right, of... <laughs> exactly. That is definitely not going to work. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that is one of the things that I was 
I was most struck by when I gave that talk at Sedona. I mean, that was a, everybody there, long-term sobriety, very strong in their program, middle-aged people. It was a very white crowd and it was a very wealthy crowd. I think that's kind of what Sedona does. I was astonished by the number of women who came up to me afterwards and who were like, um, I can't talk about my eating disorder in the in my meeting with my sponsor. That's that's a you know that's a separate issue, and I'm not supposed to talk about that. I can't talk about the sexual abuse. I can't talk about the domestic violence. Um, those things are still seen as not the point mm-hmm. of AA. Mm-hmm. And I was just astonished. These are these are women who were in tears about the fact that mm-hmm. I had just raised a set of issues that were, were very real for them. They hadn't thought about them in a long time. They'd made their peace with the fact that they talked about those things with their therapists or they talked about them with their sponsor, sort of like, you know, uh, on the side. But the culture of their meetings was such that those were secondary issues that did not have to do with with their with their recovery from alcoholism mm-hmm. um, and the question what was your role in that was one that they had been asked many times and you know someone who's been a victim of childhood sexual abuse is their role was that they were an innocent child who was victimized there is no there's no other answer to that yeah I think that's still hard for a lot of folks in the in the program to uh, to get because we are invited to understand, you know, I need to look at my part, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that just carries over into other places in your life where that question is just really inappropriate. It has to do a lot with relying on, uh, you know, dated literature. It, there's a turgid expression in Navy and human rights tribunal uh, wording, they, they call it systemic discrimination, when uh-huh, there, there uh-huh. are things built into the system that is going to make it more comfortable for one class of individual to be there yep. and another class yep. of individual to be there. You can go to a woman's group that instead of reading the big book, they read stories out of uh, women in AA. Mm-hmm. And that's a perfectly legitimate AA meeting, right? If you don't yep. like the big yep. book, don't read it, right? <laughs> you know, yep. people got sober before <laughs> it, and people have gotten sober without it. So go for it. Uh, you were talking earlier about this idea that AA is the book or AA is the 12 steps, when that's not necessarily so at every meeting you walk into. Right. And that's. What is, that's what's great about it. Yes. I mean, I think it was um, Ernie Kurtz that described it as the benevolent anarchy. Um, and that's, I think, really right. And that, you know, when I was writing my book, I really came away from the GSO kind of puzzled, like, what exactly is it that they do? Mm-hmm. What they do in many instances is do nothing. Yes. <laughs> Which I think is maddening at one level, um, but is also the sort of genius of, uh, of the organization at another level, because it means that you can just decide, you know what, I don't like this way the meeting runs, I'm going to just start another meeting. And then everybody gets into an argument, well, if it doesn't have X, it's not really AA, or like, well, if you're doing Y, you're like breaking the traditions. And 
that is a problem. As an outsider, you know, I see that I see that hands-off policy of the GSO as having really beneficial effects in that it allows cultures that I like and that I would like to see flourish to come into being and take root. It also means that I see things happen that I think should be stopped, and I get really frustrated because I think, why did the GSO step in and do something about this? Mm-hmm. Like there was a, there's been a huge outcry in California in the last few years about sexual predators at mm-hmm. AA, um, and they really, people who are organizing around this issue really wanted the GSO to do something, and they wouldn't do anything. And it was really frustrating, and I got all caught up in this, and I was like, this is the thing where, like, the GSO really needs to step in and make some rules about this. But the GSO doesn't make rules about things because it doesn't want to stop the sort of, like, kind of libertarian spread of these, like, you know, different ways of doing things. And it's, I mean, it, it is both really, really cool in the in the the cool and good things that are allowed to grow as a result of that hands off posture. And it is really, really frustrating because some of the things that grow are not cool. <laughs> um, it's a very libertarian, sort of anarchist way of just not doing things, which is both the blessing and the curse <laughs> of the entire operation. Uh, I will send you something because they, they have a quiet way of doing things at, at times because the reality is there is nothing that could happen at the general service conference. No decree, no advisory mm-hmm. action that would impose any obligation on any member or any group. So there's, right. a, there's a certain futility in uh, mm-hmm. sort of rules and regulations coming from that entity, but they did uh, quietly put out a uh, policy statement about safety in AA meetings. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you. It's, uh, it's quite enlightening, uh, and it looks at things like uh, financial predators. Uh, uh, yeah, I heard that that was happening and, a lot, too. Yeah. Uh, these, these same people in, in L.A. who were worried about the sexual predators told me there are these financial predators, which makes perfect sense. Of mm-hmm. course, people like that are going to go and prey on vulnerable people. Safety in meetings, that's a... Uh, sort of generic and, you know, not perhaps not enough that, that some people would want to see. I yeah. mean, you know, uh, when I when I talked about it to friends of mine in the program, they're like, yeah, we know how to deal with predators. We take them outside and beat the shit out of them. <laughs> so it's like, well, okay, that's, that would be a way of doing I don't think they're doing that in California. <laughs> We're down here in the South. <laughs> uh, and I can't say, you know, that I'd like that kind of justice for, you know, everyone who is who is disagreed upon by the meeting. But, uh, you know, that's a way of getting business done, I guess. You, you talked about a, a crossroads in terms of the demands from the members and uh, GSO as far as when uh, women's groups first started proliferating, uh, there was, you know, uh, more people getting sober and... Uh, some dis-ease amongst members. What do you mean, uh, you know, only women can go to that meeting? And so uh-huh. GSO was getting it from both sides. And th- uh-huh. they, th- there were two things that were, that you pointed out as being significant. One very positive in that they would not decree that a group that only allowed women to join was 
not AA based on third traditions because it had a uh -huh. special purpose. Uh, but on the same token, they also did not gender neutralize the literature. Uh -huh. You know, so on, on one side, there wouldn't be gay and lesbian meetings. There wouldn't be agnostic atheist meetings. But on the same token, the only defense against uh, an outdated uh, sort of heteronormative, patriarchal, uh -huh. uh, Judeo-Christian book is to read something else, which the group is allowed right. to do. Uh, right. Yeah, it's, that's a perfect example of how the we're going to do nothing, um, you know, allows some things to come into being and doesn't disallow other things that directly contradict those first things. Yeah. <laughs> so... And, and like you talked about, like the first women's conference was in 1964 uh, in Kansas City. I mean, that was an era of great AA widening of the gateway. In 68 was the first young people's conference. And, uh -huh. uh, you know, it, it's, and, and then we started at the top of our discussion about is there a, a more conservative movement uh, coming in AA? And yes, it, it isn't silencing a more liberal view of AA, but um, uh -huh. it's certainly tolerated. There's certainly, you're perfectly at home as a bigot in AA. You'll find a place where you can, you know, find your people, yeah. you know? There, there is a pluralism um, in, the, in the program that has always been present and has really multiplied, you know, since the mid-60s as, as groups that are dedicated to certain identities, to go back to the question of identity politics, mm -hmm. um, groups that are organized around certain identities have proliferated. When we're seeing this in the United States, you know, right now, that proliferation of distinct identities and the acknowledgement that they are different from and not worse than a sort of margin, a sort of mainstream white male Protestant heterosexual um, sort of identity. There's been a that pluralism has been increasing since the 1960s, and you can track the sort of you know, white men in AA's discomfort with that through the, you know, motions for con changes to conference-approved literature or to not change conference-approved literature. You can see the discomfort with that. That's one of the things that I was most interested in, in writing about in my, in my book was this anxiety on the part of sort of classic AA guys, white, middle-class white straight men like Bill and Bob, mm -hmm. there was a population of those people who were becoming increasingly uncomfortable with the growing diversity and pluralism mm -hmm. in AA through the 60s, the 60s up through the 80s. And that discomfort sort of hardened into the big book something, traditional in AA, which is now very much institutionalized sort of at the level of different groups and I guess has sort of said the kind of split or breaking off of the free thinkers and agnostics um, mm -hmm. conference. I guess I, there's a part of me that thinks, and I, I think this is the GSO's take on it, that it's just like, you know, going to grow and change. 
people, all you need to start a new meeting is a resentment and a coffee pot. You know, so there's always room for, there's always room for more groups that are devoted to different things. Everybody work on their own stuff. And the more, the merrier, you know, the more, it's just like, you know, today there's, a, you know, we're dealing with free speech issues all over my town today because yeah. the white supremacists are here and they're here because of free speech rights. Yeah. So similar, similar, um, set of circumstances. The more speech, the better. The yeah. more different kinds of meetings, the better. There can't be any, there can't be too much proliferation. Uh, all that's going to happen is that there are going to be more people getting sober, and that's going to be great. At the same time, an argument could be made that if all of these different meetings are going, and they're all kind of talking about different things, is AA ceasing to exist in the same way that Richard Spencer, who's here talking on my campus today, mm -hmm. believes that, you know, America is ceasing to exist because white straight men aren't at the center of it the way they used to be. And, you know, that is a super emotional question for all the people who care about America and all the people who care about AA is, is there this thing that we have been a part of which is now being torn to pieces by people who aren't like us and who don't like us. Um, I want to be able to take the long view and say, this is a really ugly and uncomfortable conversation we're having now about America, about what is AA. Mm -hmm. And it's all part of a longer process. And on the other side, we'll emerge from that process and we'll begin another process and things will look different than they looked in the past and everybody will just accommodate themselves to that new normal. On a good day, I feel like that's gonna happen in America and I feel pretty confident that it'll happen in AA. On a bad day, I feel like this is how civil wars get started. Yeah. The intensity around these, these larger political feelings in the US right now is, is high. It is very high and it is on both sides. I'm one of the few people I know um, in Gainesville today who is just going to work like it's a normal day. Yeah. <laughs> Most people I know are either hiding at home or going to a protest yeah. because just keeping on, keeping on and trusting that civil society will allow this to work itself out and we'll come out on the other end of it, maybe not quite as happy as we used to be, but we'll still be alive and we'll still be functioning, that's going to happen. And I know there are people in the program who feel this way. These people are coming into my meeting, they're disrupting it, they're talking about things that aren't really in the program, they're interfering with my sobriety, these people have got to get out of our meeting. Um, and if they don't, and they've got to get out of AA and AA needs to like, you know, go back to what it was or move towards what it should become. And these people are keeping us from doing that thing for people whose sobriety depends on having their meeting a certain way. That's a really hot button issue. An argument could be made that if you if your sobriety depends on your meeting being a certain way, maybe you need to like strengthen your sobriety by doing some more service or something. <laughs> but um, but that doesn't mean it doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel like you're really under siege. Like you're being like your very right to be the very person that you are is being threatened. It's tough to ramp down the temperature when you're talking with people who are that emotionally invested in the way their meeting is, or the way their country is, and I'm not finding that I have many tools for 
having a cooling down conversation. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that scares me. I'm not writing another book about AA, so I don't go to very many meetings these days. So I don't know how that stuff is playing out in the rooms, except what I hear secondhand from folks. And what, that, what I hear from them is that, you know, all right, we are two nations, as John Dos Passos once said. You know, we are, you know, we're free thinkers over here. Those are big book thumpers. We all, by the way, even though we don't talk about politics, we all voted for Hillary. They, by the way, all voted for Trump. And that is really troubling. The only place where I don't hear, and and this is, I have a very small number of data points for this, the only place where I don't hear that kind of things are polarized and it's really bad conversation happening is with my friends who are people of color who are in N.A. People are just like, yeah, who, who cares? Like, you know, I go to meetings, like, you know, I'm working on my sobriety. There doesn't seem like there's that, that sort of big book purist faction within AA. Again, this is based on an end of two or three, so I, I could be wrong about that. Yeah. If it's not happening in AA, in NA, like it is happening in AA, why is that and what are they doing? What are they doing to keep that sort of sense of cohesion? Well, the newer the fellowship the less reification, the less baggage that they start mm-hmm. with. So every, Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Like uh, in 20, 2001, Online Gamers Anonymous started, and it wow. wrote its mantra in contemporary language. Why wouldn't it? Just uh-huh. like AA did, right? So, so it's, right. it's obviously gender-neutral. It obviously uh, offers an agnostic atheist look at the 12 steps, things that mm. if AA started today, it would do too. Uh, I, I often mm-hmm. say if Bill Wilson joined AA today, uh, would he do as he did when he joined the Oxford group and start a new fellowship? <laughs> right, right. That's a really interesting question. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because um, he's uh, a maverick, yeah. right? You know, and... Uh, but uh, there's two things that I want to do. I want to uh, just um, get a commitment from you that we can do this again. Maybe we can <laughs> focus on it because I think a, a talk about rethinking therapeutic culture would be good. Um, oh, sure. Uh, and uh, I would like to uh, get to read that more. But for people who uh, don't know such a book exists, um, what's the best way of getting a hold of the language of the heart, a cultural history of the recovery movement from Alcoholics Anonymous to Oprah Winfrey? Well, I would really prefer if everyone would go to their local bookstore and buy a copy from a flesh and blood person at a brick and mortar store, because that is my preferred way of buying books. At the same time, I'm aware that probably many of your listeners live, as I do, in a town with no bookstore. And if that's the case, you can order it from the publisher's website, that's the University of North Carolina Press, and you can order straight from their website. But if you really want to pay a price that most people like me could afford, you'll probably just get it on Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you'll just have to be a guest on our show once a year. We'll make it an annual thing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that sounds uh, that sounds great. I will put a link to it up on Points, the blog of the Alcohol and Drugs History Society, which yeah. is my blog and where we routinely, well, not as routinely as I would like to because I'm busy with other things, but uh, we routinely feature um, news and stories about what's going on in the recovery community as well as in alcohol and drug history. 
AA history isn't something that happened way back when. It's, it's going on right now. And I think your book is, is really talks about a, a transition and uh, a fork in the road where we can go one way or another way and uh, people owe it to themselves and to the next generation to look at that history and say, ah. you know, what kind of aid do we want? And I think the work you've done is uh, critical in that way. Ernie Kurtz uh, talked about the uh, postmodern era and how AA couldn't have been AA without that. And you bring to light uh -huh. the Victorian era because the two founders grew up in the Victorian era and had those sensibilities. We see these pictures of them as uh, old guys in suits and uh, as you described the houses our grandparents grew up in, right? Yeah, right. But but that's not the that's not where their formative years came from. And That's right. And I think that I think that persistence of history within the program as it's lived by its members today is you know, is really amazing. As a historian, I love seeing that continuity. Mm -hmm. As a person who lives in the 21st century, <laughs> I find the presence of that past with all of its baggage to sometimes be a little oppressive. <laughs> well, we'll uh, have to have a green tea over that. <laughs> <laughs> sounds good. That sounds good. Thanks for inviting me on, Joe. I really appreciate it. I wish I could share more. We were talking about politics. We were talking about uh, AA. She might be doing a new blog on making AA great again, kind of riffing off of... Uh, current politics in the United States of America. It'll be good to see what she comes up with with this sort of uh, back-to-basics kind of look. That's it for our show. I'm just going out with something a little musical. I got to see this UK band in Toronto again very recently. This is a recording not yet released. It's in my little bootleg collection. Uh, from their most recent album, they're actually going on a songwriting sabbatical, coming off the road a little bit, but this is a song called Rite of Passage. It was recorded live on Vancouver Island. Enjoy Moulette. And the next song is called Rite of Passage, and it's about Greenland goslings, who, at two days old, have to leap off a 400-foot cliff. Look it up, it's brutal. So, there's the ideas about initiation and education and learn behavior.
Jay Stennett from the Sedona Mago Retreat. Thank you. And we're listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. <laughs> 